you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we'll start there. The subtitle is The Triumphal Entry, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them over the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Today is my son Micah's birthday. He is nine years old. Uh, he's, he's super tall for a nine-year-old, um, but he's nine. Uh, we, we could see him growing up before our eyes. Uh, one of the things for his birthday is uh, you know, on, on, on social media, on Facebook, I went to post a picture, and I saw in the kind of memories, birthdays in the past. And that's one of the few things that I think are good about social media is we, we see these glimpses of the past and are reminded of these different anniversaries. And I saw these photos of little Micah throughout the years uh, growing up before our eyes. Last night, Marcy spent some time with Micah looking back at his baby book, going through the calendar of the first time he talked, the first time his teeth came through. Um, it was nostalgic. And I started to think uh, last night about how Micah is a reader. He loves to read. I don't know where he gets that from, but he loves to read. And growing up, we'd always read him books. And now he's at a point where he doesn't like us to read to him. He likes to read to himself, and he'll stay up in his room with his flashlight reading. Luckily, we have like two other kids below him, so we get to spend time reading. And if you have young kids and you read books, what you'll find is that they like to read the same books over and over, night after night. And so with Micah, his favorite book was Go Dog Go. Um, We'd read Go Dog Go. That book is, the kids' books have evolved since then, I feel like. But that one's like 70 pages. And uh, it's just this cadence over and over about uh, this Go Dog Go. Some of the other books um, that our children loved was I Love You, Stinky Face, uh, Good Night Moon, um, The Froggy Books. I don't know if you've ever read The Froggy Books. Uh, we always do that with some sort of a froggy voice, and I always like lose my voice after doing it, but the kids love it. Well, our youngest, Lila, loves this book called Hug. I don't know if you've ever seen the book called Hug. Um, it's about 20 pages, and the only word throughout the entire book is hug. And it's a story of like a baby monkey who's trying to find her mom, and she goes up to different animals and goes, hug, hug. Hug, and so you just say hug over and over again for about 30 pages, and Lila 
loves it, and Micah loves it, and they love those old stories. And it's interesting as we read those stories over and over again, there's something for us as parents that's nostalgic, but for the kids, it's wonderful every single time. It's like they, they anticipate it with excitement, even though they know where the story's going, even though they, they love to say uh, kind of like the punchline. They love to say things as we say them. They love to laugh at the same jokes over and over. There's something about reading the same book over and over for them that is joyful. It's wonderful for them. And I was thinking about stories and the way that those stories resonate with our children because as we get ready for Easter week and we come to Palm Sunday and look at the last life of Jesus, these are the stories that are so familiar. We hear them again and again, especially if you've grown up in the church, this triumphal entry, the story of, of Palm Sunday. But then the last week of the life of Jesus, you have the story of the Last Supper. Even if you don't have really any history with the church, I'm sure you've heard of the Last Supper. And then there's the story of the cross, the crucifixion that we've heard over and over again. And then the story of the resurrection. These are stories that are familiar to us. But as we read them, they they do something. And in the same way that I feel like these old children's books just resonate with our children as we read them, there's something special and significant and nostalgic as we come to these stories over and over. Again, there's this rhythm to our year where we celebrate Easter. We go through Lent, celebrate Palm Sunday, celebrate Easter. It, it does something that's formational for our lives as it shapes us to be certain kind of people. Um, it, it's a reminder of our salvation, a reminder of what God is like and what he's doing in this world. There's something significant happening as we come back to these stories year after year after year. This story of Palm Sunday is a story we've probably heard many times. And today I want to kind of look at some of the details of, of this story. And maybe it's something that's a reminder and maybe it's something that is fresh and new that God is speaking to us uh, through, this, uh, through this story. But one of the things that's interesting is this story is that at the end of it, when the crowds are observing Jesus coming into the world or coming into Jerusalem, they ask this question. And it's a question that has kind of haunted gospel, Matthew's gospel, his narrative. Throughout the gospel of Matthew, the question is this. Who is this? Who is this Jesus that everyone is celebrating? Who is this Jesus that everyone is following? Who is he? What's all the commotion about? What we find is that Palm Sunday in this story, Jesus reveals who he is and what he is about. This is a story of proclamation. Palm Sunday reveals who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And I would like to suggest that everything Jesus does in this story with all of these details is intentional. There's something that he's doing here is that he's telling a story and he is making a statement even in the midst of him finding this donkey, getting on the donkey and riding into this town. Everything that Jesus does here isn't just, isn't just uh, a coincidence or the, the happenstance. He, this is all intentional what he's doing. And as we kind of look at some of the details here, here's what I mean. The first is that he's leaving uh, as he heads into Jerusalem. He's coming from the east side of Jerusalem, this place called Bethpage. Um, I think it's the, the correct pronunciation is Bethpage, but if you want to mispronounce it correctly, um, just say Bethpage. 
uh, on the Mount of Olives in the east of Jerusalem. Well, Bethpage literally means house of figs. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful place? A house of figs. Figs, uh, at this time, fig trees are, are thought to be symbolic of the whole kind of Jewish religious establishment. And as Jesus heads into this last week of his life, he's leaving this house of figs and heading into Jerusalem. At the end of this chapter, we come across a fig tree. Jesus sees it, sees that it's fruitless, and he curses it, and the fig tree withers. You could say this is maybe just a story of a fig tree, not really sure what's going on, or maybe there's something symbolic here that's going on as Jesus is talking about kind of this old system that has been put in place that is now not going to be needed anymore because of what Jesus is about to do. He leaves from Bethpage, and he gets on a donkey, and he gets on a donkey. That's always interesting to me. Like, I hear a donkey, and uh, we kind of think of that from kind of our culture, where donkeys seem to be clumsy. Um, When I think donkey, I think Shrek, you know, like comic relief, something humorous, and and not really something that you would, you know, or, or like a Western, you know, you have like the cool cowboys on the horses and then like the guy that is kind of the bum they put on the donkey. Like, but, but for in, in Jesus' time to ride a donkey meant something different. The donkey, it was the noble steed, right? It was, the donkey was actually something that was okay to ride on and a lot of royalty would ride on. And it communicates a message. Oftentimes, if you were coming into uh, a town and you were a ruler, you would ride a donkey instead of a horse if you were communicating that you would come in peace, that you would come in peace. It was something that was humble and un- it was something that wasn't threatening, but it wasn't something that was just clumsy. It was honorable to ride in on a donkey. So as Jesus rides in on a donkey here, it, this is something someone royal would do. There's something communi- being communicated. He's not just walking into this town. He's riding in on a donkey. And what we find is that Matthew says this is actually fulfilling something that was prophesied in the Old Testament about what Jesus would do when the Messiah would come. And he quotes the Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem, and the battle boat would be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus understands as he gets on this donkey and he rides in, this fulfillment of prophecy, that this king that is anticipated and the people are waiting for expectantly, Jesus comes in on this donkey. It's this fulfillment. It's this proclamation that he is king and that this prophecy is being fulfilled. And then after he comes in on a donkey, what we find is that the crowd spreads cloaks across the ground. They throw their cloaks out so that he can walk across them. This is something, again, that would be kind of foreign in our... I mean, if we saw someone crossing a street, and maybe it was an elderly lady and there was a puddle, we might help her come across, but very few of us would actually take the shirt off our back and place it in the street so that she wouldn't get dirty. Like, this is an act of, of honor of what's happening here. There's this old story about Sir Walter Raleigh back in England in the time of Queen Elizabeth. He was this great explorer, this great traveler, and there's this famous kind of legendary story that one day he was walking the streets of London with Queen Elizabeth. In London, the streets are are muddy, 
the plumbing's terrible, they're dirty, and she was crossing the street, and they come across this puddle, and Sir Walter Raleigh, the great Sir Walter Raleigh, takes off his cloak and places it down on the street so that Queen Elizabeth can cross through the puddle. And it was just something that caught everyone's attention. One of the things that that signifies is, no matter how popular this guy is, no matter how influential this great explorer was, he still stopped and sacrificed his cloak to honor the queen. It's an act of saying that I want to honor you so much that I'm willing to sacrifice the things that are important to me. He placed that down so the king could cross. It implies that if a need rose, the person would be willing to give anything to the the one that they're trying to honor. So the people who are receiving Jesus are proclaiming with this act of honor, placing their cloaks down, that this is a king. And then the palm branches, as the kids explained to us in that video, palm branches represented something of royalty. They cut palm branches down, placed it in the road. They waved palm branches in the air. And the the significance of this is that, you know, Jerusalem is this, this place that's been conquered by Rome. Before that, it was a place that was conquered by the Greeks. And the Greeks wouldn't just conquer you. I think we talked about this last week. They would try to wipe out your entire culture. And one of the things that the Greeks did to the, to the temple, the sacred space, was they went in and just defiled it. They sacrificed swine on the altars there to the god of Zeus. And it was just this thing that was completely offensive to the, the, the Jewish religious system. And there was this man named Judas Maccabeus uh, that came and he rose up and led this rebellion against the Greeks and they threw the Greeks out. And as they threw the Greeks out, he came back into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He restores order. And he set up a dynasty that lasted 100 years. And when Judas Maccabeus comes back into the city, they pull out palm branches for him. And they wave palm branches to celebrate his victory. A couple hundred years later, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, this is a sign that Jesus is coming. There's this cleansing of the temple that's coming. There's this restoration of order. And this is the king that will lead us. These things are are very symbolic, but they're pointing to something, that Jesus is king, the Messiah. And then finally, they sing these royal hymns to him. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. When I hear the word Hosanna, uh, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I hear Hosanna, I associate it with Palm Sunday, and I associate it with usually children doing some sort of a musical where they walk in through the aisles. We've done that a number of years, and they're waving palm branches, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and it's precious, right? It's cute. It's just something that that warms our heart. But this exclamation of Hosanna um, is also a cry of desperation, it's a cry of desperation. And sometimes uh, that we, we love having our, our children remind us and, and, and seeing this, but there's something here about the, the, the desperation of this word that we lose. Hosanna literally means save. Save us and save now. These people are crying out to Jesus saying, save now, salvation is here. We're desperate. When I think of Hosanna, I think of the times in my life where there's so much darkness or things have collapsed around me and I'm in these places of desperation and I just cry out to God. That's a Hosanna. Lord, save now. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been in moments where uh, you're just crying for God to save your situation. Maybe it's to save your marriage that has just 
become broken, full of tension. You're just crying out, Lord, save this. Maybe it's your relationship with your children. Maybe it's your financial situation. We, we come to these moments in our life of desperation, and this is where I think the Hosanna resonates in our soul. We need God to intervene. We need a Savior to come to fix this thing that is broken or dysfunctional or hurting. And these people, they put their cloaks on the road, they put the palm branches down, and they cry out, Save now, Hosanna. This is a story that is loaded with some symbolic elements. Jesus coming to save. Jesus is intentional about these details, but then there's also something else happening in this story on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. It starts the Jewish holiday of Passover. And some of you know the story of Passover. Passover is one of the most important dates on their schedule. Passover represents a time in their history when they were slaves to this ancient empire called Egypt. And they would cry out as slaves, and God miraculously intervenes and rescues them with the Passover. And it was this time where they, they're delivered from this oppressive empire. They're set free by God, and they're reminded how God intervenes, and they celebrate. At this time in their history, they're conquered by Rome. Again, an oppressive, violent empire. Romans may be, may be the most powerful empire this world has ever seen. And as Passover comes to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, uh, they would be ready to celebrate how God delivered them from an oppressive empire. And if you're within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you're obligated to travel to Jerusalem to be a part of the celebration. And in fact, Jews from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And some estimates I've seen historians say that there could be anywhere between 1 million to 2.5 million people that were gathered in Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate being set free from an oppressive empire. Now, if you're Rome, and this people that you've conquered are gathering in numbers this large to celebrate how God has delivered them from an empire, if you're Rome, what do you think? You better not get any ideas, right? If you're Rome, this might have been something that caused a little bit of anxiety. You might have been a little apprehensive about this holiday of celebration. You might think this is an area of the world that tends to flare up with rebellions. So here's something that Rome would do for the Passover, is they had this military base west of Jerusalem called Caesarea, near the coast. And they had a garrison of Roman troops stationed in Jerusalem. Around the time of the Passover, though, their legions would march out from this military base near the coast. And the leader of the Roman army at that time was probably Pilate, kind of the governor of the area, would lead this procession into Jerusalem to remind the people, we're in charge here. Look at our power. Look at our might. Remember our history. Don't get any ideas. And from the west, this parade would come into town right before Passover, reminding the Jewish people that this is what power looks like. There was a, another kind of triumphal entry that would enter from the west. So as Jesus enters from the east, there's a contrast happening here in this story. If Rome just enters from the west to remind the Jewish people who's in charge, Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives in the east with a different kind of parade. 
The Roman leader would come in on this war horse and this stallion. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Rome comes with its military might. Jesus comes with the followers of people who are compelled with him. Rome's using intimidation as a tactic to keep order. Jesus comes with this message of love. Rome is coercive with the people to get them to stay in line. Jesus comes and compels the people to a new way. This is a contrast of kingdoms, but more than that, it's a collision of kingdoms. The kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has come. One to rule on the throne, the other to rule in the hearts of men and women. The story of Palm Sunday is Jesus coming and making this statement. That he is the king and that his kingdom is here. It's being enacted here and now. And it's different than the kingdoms of this world. It's the kingdom of heaven. And it's not defined by coercive power. It's an invitation to love and transformation. This is the kingdom that we have talked about here in Matthew. The kingdom that we are a part of. The kingdom of God. That is this future destination where we're all headed, and yet there's this glimpse of it that's breaking into our world here and now. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus is declaring that. That he is king, and that this is a new kind of kingdom. There's a new way of life. And it's defined by God's love for us and our love for each other. This is the kind of kingdom that we're invited to belong to. This is the kind of kingdom that we are at work with here at Desert City. A kingdom defined by love, forgiveness, peace, sacrifice, grace, caring for each other. It's outlasted the Roman Empire. And this is an invitation to a life that is eternal, that starts now. That we come where we say, Jesus, the same way that you've entered into this city, as a king on a donkey, symbolizing peace, the same way you come into our hearts. Not coming, trying to overpower our will. As C.S. Lewis says, not God cannot ravish, he can only woo. But with this invitation to a new way of life. This is the kind of way Jesus enters our lives, as this king on a donkey inviting us to this kingdom that's of heaven. This changes our behavior. This changes the way we live. There's something that, about this, the early church, the early Christians that caught the glimpse of this. There's a historian, Diane Bass, that says this about these followers of Jesus. She says, the early community that followed Jesus was a community of practice. Jesus' followers did not just sit around the campfire and listen to lectures on Christian theology. They listened to stories that taught them how to act toward one another and what to do in the world. They healed people. They offered hospitality. They prayed together. They challenged traditional practices and rituals. They ministered to the sick. They comforted the grieving. They fasted and they forgave. These actions induced wonder. It gave them courage and empowered hope. And it opened up a new vision for what God was doing. By doing things together, they began to see differently. They were victims of one of the history's most vicious empires, yet they lived, and they lived in utterly hopeless circumstances, yet the disciples did not hope the world would change. They changed it. And in doing so, they themselves changed. This kingdom of heaven is what transforms the world. 
And it starts in our hearts and it flows out of us to others. The way of Jesus. The way of the true king. And this is the message that we're invited to. So today for this Palm Sunday, uh, Tim's going to come back up and we're going to spend some time reflecting on these questions. The first is, this story of Jesus entering into the city, we believe that it also happens inside of us individually, that Jesus enters into our hearts. Maybe that's something that you've never allowed to happen. You've never said, Jesus, come not to override my will, but come as this king on this donkey, enter into this place of my life. Or maybe today, as this king, Jesus, comes into our life, you need to maybe symbolically place cloaks in front of him. There's things that you need to do that you know in your heart you need to just give to the Lord and say, whatever the need is, Lord, I lay down my precious possessions for you to honor you and worship. Maybe it's proverbial waving palm branches, whatever that looks like in your soul. Or maybe you come today to Jesus as he enters with desperation, crying out, Hosanna. Lord, save now. You're in a situation that looks hopeless, that looks broken, that requires a miracle. And the intervention of this king who saves needs to just come into that circumstance and transform it. The kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that we're a part of, it's something that starts today, starts now. It's eternal, and you're invited to it. We're going to close today with communion. Communion is a sacred act of what Jesus has done in this world. So we come to the communion table. This is symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken on the cross. This king that loves us so much, he would lay down his life for us. We take a piece of bread that represents this body that's broken. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood that was shed on the cross that was poured out. Today, when you're ready, you can move to the table and remember and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're also going to have some people up here that would love to pray with you. And maybe today, when you think about kind of your own circumstances, that's something that just needs saving, you could just come up and we'll have some people in the front that would just love to pray for your circumstance. Maybe you've never invited Jesus into your heart and today you just need to come forward and say, I want this king in me. I want to be a part of this kingdom that is eternal. We'll take some time and create space around this room. Let's spend some time in prayer and worship and responding. And I'd say, please be in tune to just what the spirit is pushing and, and, and what the spirit is doing in your soul and be bold with it today. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, for this Palm Sunday, for this story that is familiar to us, Lord, this story that we've heard again and again, and yet we're reminded that in this story, you are proclaiming who you are as King and Messiah. And the kind of King that you are, Lord, a King that woos us. You don't come in and override our will. You invite us to love and to respond to your love. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts today. You would reveal the things that, uh, that feel hopeless, but that you want to work in. 
Lord, that you would meet us in our circumstances, that you would meet us on our journey, that you would empower us with your spirit, Lord, that you would save us. I ask your blessing today on us, Lord, as we come to your table. May your presence be felt in our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.